All right, we'll go ahead and get started here. I always like to say on a night like tonight, now we know who the true faithful are. <laughs> we know who's really committed. <laughs> or, yeah. Or maybe a little questionable in the wisdom. We, you know, this, we, we made the decision at 10.30 today. We gathered, powwowed, because there's a lot of factors that we have to consider. Like kids workers, you know, if kids workers don't come, we can't have a wana or, or, or people who cook meals. Um, and so we looked at the weather forecast and there was no more snow according to the forecast. And, uh, you know, D20 was open and we even saw sun coming through. So we said, well, I guess we'll meet. And then the whole rest of the day, I'm just looking out the window seeing snow come. And so thank you for being here. Don't. Don't risk your life if you need to go, we understand. Um, but let me pray for us and we'll get going. And Father, we do pray for safety as we walk out to the parking lot and as we drive home. And uh, just pray for safety for everyone. And that we pray for a good evening. I think about our kids and our youth and choir and, uh, and, and, and the, the group we have here. We pray that you'd be honored. That you'd use this to minister to us and spur us on in the faith for your glory. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So we are in the book of Nehemiah. And of course, what's like the one... If you, ha if you had one statement, one phrase, what is Nehemiah about? How would you summarize it? Re the wall. Rebuilding the wall. Everybody... In fact, I wonder how many building projects have been called Nehemiah building. In fact, our church had one. Several back. You know, we're going to build. We call it the Nehemiah Project. And I remember having, uh, I lived with a group of guys when I was college age in Fayetteville, Arkansas. We, it was, we, it was, they called it the California House because it was on California Street. It happened to be next door to the house that the Clintons lived in whenever they were in grad school there. Something to be proud of, right? Uh, and uh, anyway... There was a retaining wall, and it had fallen over. And the, the the leader, it was kind of a discipleship. And the leader of the house said, "We're going to be like Nehemiah." You know, he read from the book of Nehemiah. We're going to rebuild the retaining wall. Like, is that? I'm not sure if that's the application. <laughs> Guarding the wall. Yeah, yeah. They were literally falling over. I think it was a safety issue. But um, it is certainly about the walls. But it's also about more than just the walls. And the tagline that was going through my head last week as I was preparing was the, the tagline, if these walls could talk. And I ended up not using it, but maybe I'll hang on to it maybe one day. So just let me point out several principles, themes of the book. One, the first one, very similar to when we looked at Ezra, because there's a lot of similarities between the book, and that is God is faithful. To his people. That's a, that's a major principle throughout the Bible, and it's highlighted in this particular book. Uh, in, in chapter 1, the book begins with Nehemiah. He's in Persia. These books, Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, all occur around the same time period. God's people have been exiled to Babylon. Babylon falls to, to to Persia, and the Persian kings are friendly to God's people and basically say, you can you can return back. So all of the Persian kings, Cyrus, Darius, Xerxes, and his Greek name is Xerxes, in, in Esther he's called Ahasuerus. Um, but I think this coming Sunday I'll just refer to him as Xerxes because it's a, le a little easier to say. Um, anyway, these kings allow, they're, 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 they're friendly toward God's people. And God's people are, are end up having high positions under these kings. And that's kind of a common pattern you see in the Bible. Joseph makes his way up to number two, right, under, under the Pharaoh. And here you have you know, Ezra makes his way up. Nehemiah, cupbearer of the king, number two. When we look at Esther, Mordecai is going to eventually make his way up to number two. So God is clearly orchestrating this. He's faithful to his people. So Nehemiah is in Persia, but he gets word about his, his people back in Jerusalem. Look at chapter 1, verse 3. 
And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So he, he hears this and he mourns, he weeps, he repents. Why repent? You know, we hear bad report about walls being burned and his instinct is repentance. Why? What's the connection between repentance turning from sin and, and Jerusalem being sacked by bad guys. Yeah, this is God's judgment and He's made a promise. If you'll return to Me, I'll bless you, I'll give you the land. If you reject Me, there's going to be consequences. Judgment. And they're experiencing the judgment. Even after returning to the land, there's still the judgment there. And so look at verse 7. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. So he says, it's a sin problem. It's not just a, a wall problem. It's a sin problem. Um, and so he, he feels compelled to return and to try to lead God's people to repent and restore the walls. And the, the, the king allows him. So 13 years after Ezra, he returns home, and of course they experience opposition. Look at chapter 4, verses 7 through 9. I'm just going to read about the op some of the opposition. Chapter 4, verse 7, But when Sambalat and Tobiah, remember that name Tobiah, and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward, and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. So they pray, and they set a guard. Look at verses 15 to 20. When our enemies heard that it was known to us and that God had frustrated their plan, we all returned to the wall each to his work. From that day on, half of my servants worked on construction and half held the spears, shields, bows, and coats of mail. And the leaders stood behind the whole house of Judah who were building on the wall. Those who carried burdens were loaded in such a way that each labored on the work with one hand and held his weapon with the other. And each of the builders had his sword strapped at his side while he, while he built. The man who sounded the trumpet was beside me. And I said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, the work is great and widely spread and we are separated on the wall far from one another in the place where you hear the sound of the trumpet rally to us there. Our God will fight for us. So they're, they're fighting while they're building. You kind of get the sense that it's, there's an, it's intense and they have a plan. If the trumpet blows, relocate over here. Um, but they, they pray, they ask for God's blessing and they also work and take action and defend. And both are important, right? Praying to God, doing this in God's strength, doing it according to God's plan, but also acting and doing and building and defending. So here's my first question. What are the consequences if we don't do both? We're supposed to do both, hold both together. Some people tend to do one and not the other, or this one and not this one. What are the consequences if we don't do both? Interloper? Explain what you mean. Okay. Being on guard is important. Yeah. There's consequences if a person's not on guard. Yeah. 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 Very good. So if, I'm, if it's all action and no doing it in God's strength, prayer, that, that gets out of balance. So it's not, not always easy to find the right balance between these two things. Uh, but both are important. Praying, working in God's strength, and, but also working and doing what we're supposed to do. So they finish rebuilding the wall in 52 days. Uh, service, and we'll talk about that. But... There's a summary in Nehemiah 9, if you want to turn over to Nehemiah chapter 9. 
It's a great summary. You know, every once in a while throughout these books, there's just this incredible summary of what God's done. And chapter 9 contains one of those summaries. But I want us to look at the very end of the summary. See, notice, for example, verse 6. You are the Lord. You alone. You made heaven. So they start with God. And then he talks about choosing Abraham, verse 7. And then he talks about Egypt, verse 9. So it's just history. Creation, Abraham, Egypt, the Exodus, Mount Sinai, verse 13. And then he kind of brings them up to the present day, their present, in, in verse 30. I think it's a, just a real helpful summary of what's happened. Um, verse 30, Many years you bore with them, warned them by your Spirit through your prophets. Remember how we talked about God warning His people, sending prophets? Yet they would not give ear, therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. There's the judgment. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. So God sent them away to Babylon as exiles, and it was a terrible judgment, but He didn't totally forsake them. He, rem- he's, he brings them back. Verse 32, Now therefore our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the king of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. You've been faithful, we've been wicked. We saw ourselves, and rightly so, but all along, you've been faithful. And that's the whole point. God's been faithful, even while His people are unfaithful. Um, On Sunday, I gave the example of a husband and wife loving each other to the end, even when one spouse is not able to reciprocate, to return, to to love her, to love him. And I've seen it. Um, I've seen it with several couples in our church. I saw it with my mother-in-law and, and Whitney's stepdad. Uh, I saw my grandmothers. They weren't married, but I saw both of them experience this awful, you know, disease where they don't they don't know who they don't know who the caretaker is, and they're you know they make it hard on the caretaker. And yet the caretaker continues to, to love and serve. I know Diana's done that. Um, so I guess my question is this: Have you have you have you seen this? Have you any any? I'm not asking for details, but anything to add to the to the conversation from anybody? Any thoughts? Yeah. Labor of love. Yeah. Because we kind of, you know, even with your kids, like our kids, we, for a phase, (laughs) you love them and there's no reciprocation at all, you know? All they do is cry. But but there's at least this hope, like one day they're going to thank me, surely, (laughs) maybe when they're like 40, but one day they'll thank me, right? They'll be a, I appreciate what you did, thank you, but with with a spouse who you, you know is not going to recover, you, you you serve them knowing there's never going to be a thank you on this side of heaven. You know that's 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 really hard. And I I actually I point this principle out anytime I'm doing marital counseling, especially when the, it's on the rocks, and it often is um, when I'm talking to them, and it's like I'm going to leave her because she's annoying. I'm going to leave him because he's and I'm like, you know, I just want to remind you, you made a commitment to love him even if he doesn't know who you are. You made a commitment to love her even if she doesn't know who you are. So that's that's the commitment. And I'm sure that they're I'm sure he's a bum, or I'm sure she's hard to love. But that's not you didn't say I love you as long as you're 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 loving me. That's not even the promise we made. I'll love you as long as you love me. That's not the commitment. I love you even when you don't know who I am. And you're making life hard on me, and I know that you're never gonna thank me. I'm gonna love you. It's a it's a it's a significant commitment. Um, I think it's Tim Keller who talks about, you know, when you commit to love someone, there's a sense in which you don't even know, at some level, who they are, who they're gonna be. You know, you don't 
You don't know what they're going to be like 10 years from now, 20 years. I mean, you have a good idea because you're looking for somebody with character. So there's something there. But but people change over time and they become and we become different people. And then and you don't know if they're going to get sick and you don't know if they're going to get to a point where they don't know who you are. So in a sense, you're committing to marry a person level. You you don't even for sure know who they are, who they're going to be 30 years from now, 40 years from now, 50 years from now. So it's a significant, significant commitment that a lot of times when we're 20, we just say, oh, it's going to be fine. Love will keep us alive. We don't need the premarital counseling. We, we got this. Like, okay, but in a year when you don't, here's my phone number, and, and then we'll talk that. I often say, okay, in, in about a year, we'll come back and we'll talk about this. Um, here's my other question. What are some other examples of God's faithfulness to his people? So I'm, I'm using this illustration of marriage. Uh, especially the extreme where he, he or she is sick. God is faithful to us like a, like a spouse. What are some other examples in the Bible of where we see, or maybe from your life, where we see God's faithfulness to his people, maybe even in spite of their unfaithfulness? Yeah. Yeah, ready. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's a great that's a great example. Prodigal son. The father runs out to him. Yes, sir. Right. Yeah, okay. Right. That's a great point. That's a great point. God fulfills to Abraham hundreds of years after Abraham's death. And we, we might look at that or experience that and say, wait a minute, that's not being faithful to me. Well, it's a bigger, there's something bigger at play. It's not just all about you. And so that's a good reminder. A lot of times, especially as we look at the Old Testament, we see the promises, and a lot of times we don't see fulfillment for a long ways down the road. And, uh, of course, at the time, they, they, I'm sure it felt like this is not now, and therefore, where is it? And I wonder, if you look at that for us today, you know, what does it look like? How long will God tarry before he returns? How long will he tarry before he fulfills the promise that he'll return for us? And I think there's something for us to learn here. It, it may be longer than what we think. It may, it may be a different time, time frame than what we're thinking. It may be a di- little different way than what we think. We trust it. He's going to be faithful. It might look a little different. That's going to look because that's the pattern. Yeah. 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 Really. Yeah. Really. Working for seven extra years. <laughs> yeah. Seven years sounds like a long time. No, it's true. Any other thoughts? These are good examples. Okay, so we see the faithfulness of God to His people. And then the second point we're going to make here is that God's people are faithful to His Word. So because He's faithful, we are faithful to Him, and in particular, faithful to His Word. Remember last week, we, similar points. God is faithful, therefore we are faithful to worship. But here the emphasis is, is on the Word. And we see this in Ezra chapter 8. One of the first things that happens when, when the walls are built, they have this kind of service. 
and they read the Bible. And I just kind of drew out some principles. Verse 1 of chapter 8 says, All the people gathered as one man. And it's to all who could understand what they heard were there. And they gathered to hear. And you know, one principle I think we can draw from this is just the importance of all of God's people gathering as one to hear God's Word for worship. Uh, what are some consequences if we don't value this? What are some consequences if the church doesn't value this idea of all of God's people gathering as one for worship? For what are, what are consequences if we don't value that? What's that? The church will die? Yeah? Why, why will it die? Say that again. Yeah. Because worship is about keeping our eyes on Him. And if we take away this key central place where we're supposed to be putting our eyes on Him, it's like the lifeblood of a church. That's a good point. Right? Right? We're going to go somewhere. We're going to put our focus on something. If it's not, if we're not intentionally coming back to the Word and worshiping God, what's... Yeah. Right? Yeah, it's good. Any other thoughts on consequences? We don't value this, this idea of all of God's people gathering for worship. Yeah, it's good. It's good. I kind of think about, I mean, you've all kind of gotten at this, but it's like, what what else would we be doing? If we don't value this, this idea. All of us gather for worship. But then what, what else do we do? And you start to prioritize other things. I'll tell you, I don't remember where it was. Some church I was connected with. I remember there was this group of people, and they really kind of prided themselves on this idea that they would, they wouldn't worship, they would just pray during the worship, for the worship. And I thought, it's one hour out of the week to worship with God's people. You could hypothetically pray any other hour the whole week, but this one hour, you're going to remove yourself from worship, from the Word, in order to pray. It was just, it was just dumbfounding. I'm like, I just don't get it. I mean, I love the, I love the instinct of, we're going to pray. Wonderful. Like, Pray the hour before. Pray two hours before. Pray five hours before. Pray the hour after. Like pray any time all week. But why during the time when God's people are supposed to gather for worship? Does it, it blew my mind. You can tell I'm not passionate about that at all. Right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. Right on. That's a great point because we could hypothetically be committed to the idea of gathering, but if we're not gathering around the word, then we got we got an issue. And it's a good thing to gather, it's a good thing, but gather for what purpose? That's it matters what it is we're gathering around. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Hmm. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Really. Would I be putting you on the spot at all to share about your experience of coming back to worship and what it was like to be able to worship? First? If you, if it's putting you on the spot, just tell me not this time. We'll do it later. I just I thought about as she was talking. I thought about you. You have a very powerful story. Right, but and then and then after then when you came back and you were able to sing and understand what that was like. Right on. Thank you for sharing. So you know, I, thought, I just thought it was a powerful testimony, and I apologize for putting you on the spot. Thank you for sharing. What I, yeah, there you go. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> what I took away, what was really powerful to me, was this idea of like she wasn't able to worship the way she had, and she really missed it. 
and it, we, most of us have not had that experience where we, with the exception of, you know, COVID kind of removed things for a couple months. Um, but then the experience of it, when it happened, like when, when God brought it back and you were able to hear and understand and sing. And you, I remember the way you said it to me, it really is, is powerful. It was like she had missed it so much, she appreciated it so much more because it had kind of been taken away. And I just remember thinking, wow, that's powerful, you know, to, to kind of have it removed get it back and the appreciation you know it's like that's a sign of god's people they appreciate the opportunity to be able to worship it wasn't like oh i gotta go do this it's like oh wow i can worship with you i thought it's very powerful thank you for sharing yeah I always think about that when I drive past the gyms, and the gyms are just packed with people. And I'm like, you can do that this afternoon. All right. Uh, well, thank you for sharing. Um, so just a couple more principles here that we see. In, in verse 5, Ezra opened the book. I think it's important. Opening the verse 3, read from it. Verse 3, the people listened with attentive ears. Um, Verses 7 and 8, the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So there were some people who kind of helped the people to understand. They were, they were explaining it. You know, it's like, that's, we just want you to understand. And I made the point that that's the first goal of preaching or teaching is just that you understand. It's not, do you like it, or do you know what to do with it, or do you know why it's relevant? It's like, do you just understand what it's saying, what it means, the meaning of the text? Why, why is that essential? What are the consequences if we don't understand the meaning of a particular text? What are some of the consequences that come from that? Yeah. Right, right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Take it totally out of context. Make it say whatever you want it to say. And then it's not really God's Word anymore. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Any other thoughts on the consequences if we don't start with the actual meaning of the text? That's not a priority number one. I've used this illustration before. I'll use it again. Uh, I've, I've, I've learned it. For, I got heard it from somebody else. This idea that if this line represents the, the goal is to stay on the line. Stay on the line. That's, this is God's Word. And what we have a natural tendency to do is either come up above the line and say a little bit more or come up a little bit short. And actually what tends to happen is more like this. Talking about the, the, talk about the false religion like that. And saying a little bit more than what it says, is what it, that's what legalism is. And saying a little less than what it is, that's what liberalism is. Right? So the text, I'm trying to think of an example. The, 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 go ahead. Right. Yeah, a narrow path. Yeah, yeah. And there's a tendency among some to just say a little bit more, require a little bit more. And then there's also a tendency to, uh, on the other extreme, well, not it's not quite that, you know, come to kind of dumb it down, water it down a little bit, dilute it a little bit. And you know, the classic example is Satan talking to Eve, and he said, Did God really say you can't eat from any tree? And what he's doing is he's adding to God God said, Don't eat from one tree. But Satan makes it so much harsher, so much more. God really said you can't eat from any tree? 
No, that's not what he said. But that's, that's more. It's adding to. It's legalism. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And then she said, in the day that we eat of it, we'll die. And he said, what did he say? Surely not. Like, no, you wouldn't die. God loves you. He's not going to, you're not going to die. That's liberal. So you got Satan doing both right from the very beginning. And we all have a tendency to do a little more or a little less. And either is not staying the line. And as a, a teacher, a preacher, someone who's teaching, whether it's your kids or a class or a church, you know, for me, this is extremely important that I not that I say what the text says, and that's why it's so important to study it and try to figure out. And you know, sometimes you have to really wrestle wrestle with it, because when I stand up in front of people and say, "This is what God's word says," I, I want to be really, really as confident as I can be that I'm actually staying on the line and not going a little too far, or a little too coming up a little short. Does that make sense? Okay, let me ask this question. Um, it, we, we talked about, I talked about on Sunday, true worship is centered around God's Word. We've explored that a little bit here. We talked about how returning Word will lead to worship. If we're truly coming under God's Word in a genuine, authentic way, not just, I want to know more, or get head knowledge, or I want to study it so I can find errors in it. You know, if we come with the right spirit and attitude to God's Word, it will lead to worship. And God uses His Word in this way. He uses His Word, and I use the example of talking to somebody. When you talk to somebody, you exchange words, you get to know them. God's given us His Word, interact with it, and stay the line, you get to know Him. And it moves, it moves to worship. So why is it important? We talked about this a little bit, but here's the question. Why is it important that our worship be centered around God's Word? And not just merely, you mentioned experience or... There's any number of things. It could, tradition could be another thing. We could center our worship around tradition. We could center our worship around any number of things. Why is it crucial we continue to center our worship around God's Word? Yeah. Right? Yeah, I like that. True. So therefore, true worship is based on truth. There'll come a day when the true will worship in spirit and in truth. It's good. Any other thoughts on why it's important for our worship to be centered around God's Word? Right. Right, yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah, I think you're right. We use the terms synonymously, music and worship, and certainly, as you said, worship can be a part, uh, music can be a part of worship and, and should be. The Bible tells us to sing, um, but it's not necessarily synonymous, and there are other key components to worship besides just the music. Um, there's something else you said that kind of got me thinking about something. What was it? Oh, the feeling. You know, I think God made us emotional with feelings, but if they're not tethered to the truth in the Bible, they can certainly mislead. And I've I've been to a, a number of concerts when I looked around, and by concerts I mean not Christian concerts. Uh, I've looked around and thought, I mean, these people look like they're having a, quite a, an emotional experience. <laughs> you know, it's like they, they, they seem to be doing some things. That, like I'm, I might see people doing these kinds of things in a dramatic church. And uh, thinking, man, they're having some kind of experience. They might be a little enhanced by certain uh, <laughs> substances. Uh, but I've thought, 
you know that that looks that looks very emotional. <laughs> Something's happening there. Um, any other thoughts on that? Why it's important for our worship to be centered around God's word? Right. Right, right. Yeah, absolutely. Some people hear word-centered worship. And it seems so lifeless. It seems so boring. Uh, number one, it doesn't have to be. Number two, it's the same spirit who inspired these words is the same spirit that we want present among us, uh, filling us. And, uh, and if we're going to, you know, being the one who's the, the motivation for the, the emotions and the feelings. Right. Sure. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, but absolutely. You know, I, I just, I just, it, it, it's one of those that just gets at me when people kind of make this dichotomy between spirit-centered and word-centered. You know, as if there's an, an option. It's like if you want to be spirit-centered, you got to be word-centered because it's the spirit of the word, and this is where you find the spirit. Go to the word. Okay, let me ask this question. Similar. Question, but a little different. I made the comment on Sunday, you know, our mission statement is making disciples who worship, connect, serve, impact. And I said, not only should our worship be word-centered, but our connecting should be word-centered. Why, why is it important that our connecting is word-centered? In other words, our Bible studies, our Sunday schools, our ministry, women's ministry, why is it important that that element is also word-centered? What are consequences if it's not? Right? Right? Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Right. Right on. I think about the Great Commission. You go make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Because teaching is a key component of discipleship, of what we're supposed to be doing. Hmm. Yeah. Right on. Right on. Yeah. One of the big misnomers of the Protestant Reformation, some people think, you know, because the Roman Catholic Church was like the, the clergy really could read and teach and you just trust what they said, the, the overreaction is, well, we all have equal interpretations. And the Reformers certainly still believed in the role of teaching and the role of somebody who studies and, and teaches. And the idea was that people could then take it and go read it and say, okay, I see, or, or well, what he's saying seems very inconsistent with what I'm saying, but there's a there's kind of two extremes, and I think some some Protestants have tended to go to the extreme of everybody's interpretation is equally valid. Well, not necessarily. <laughs> All right, any other thoughts on why it's important for our connecting to be centered around God's Word? Right on. Right. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, it's good. And that's a good reminder. It's not, it's not, it doesn't always have to be formal. It doesn't have to be a teacher in front of the room. Everybody's sitting. It's, it, there can be, you know, these things as you come, as you go, as you're lying down, as you're waking. Uh, this ought to just kind of be, we ought to be centered around God's Word, even just sort of in our, our daily routine. Talking about it, reflecting on it. It's good.
Okay, third point here is that God's people are changed by His Word. They're changed by His Word. So not only are we faithful to it, we're changed by it. The point here is that when, when we truly come under the Word, once again, with the right spirit, the right attitude, submitting ourselves to God in this, uh, letting the Spirit do His work in us as we come under it, there ought to be changes. Uh, in, in Nehemiah 8, verse 9, look at that. Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people's people, this day is holy to the Lord. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the Lord. I'm sorry, heard the words of the law. So they hear the word and they weep. And I think it's because they realized we've come up short. And that's okay. It's like that's not, it's okay for God's people to hear his word and feel guilty. That's, that's, a, that's a part of it. We're supposed to come under conviction. Once again, that's the spirit thing. That's good. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. That's good. That's good. Good point. Um, in this context, I think that they're weeping. I mean, it may be. We're hearing it for the first time. But, but, but the Ezra and Nehemiah sort of encourage them, like, this is ultimately meant for good. You know, like, the guilt is okay, but it's for your good. There's a ministry happening here. Um, I use the illustration of surgery. You know, no, nobody wants to have surgery. In, in other words, we're not like, oh yeah, I'm looking forward to going under the knife, but we're certainly looking forward to what happens on the other side of it, you know, after we've healed and everything. Uh, you, you know, there's ultimately good, though there could be some some pain through the, the process. Um, yeah, please. Simon the Zealot. Uh. I got gotcha. you. Yeah. Yes. It's good. Yeah. Right on. Right on. So there are several ways that Nehemiah brings God's word to bear with the people because he sees, oh man, they need God's word in this situation. And I, I highlighted several. One in chapter 5 was the oppression of the poor. Um, another one, I don't remember the chapter, but was this issue of uh, recognizing the Sabbath, honoring the Sabbath. Another one was this issue of tithing. Um, and the, the one issue that I really focused in on on Sunday was the one that happens at the very end. A lot of times what I'm beginning in the very end is the, the bookmarks are oftentimes give you a lot of idea of what it's, the book's about. So in chapter 13, the big issue is this idea of purity, holiness, set apart. So look, for example, at chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. On that day they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people, and in it was written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. It goes back to, I thought I wrote it down. I thought I wrote it down, but I didn't. Uh, Deuteronomy, I believe. And one other place too. Um, Verse 2, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them, yet our God cursed into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. So they hear the law, verse 1, and then they say, we've got to make a change. And they do. And then in chapter 13, verses 4 to 7, remember that name Tobiah earlier? We see it again. 
Look at verse 4. Now before this, Eliashib, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. Nehemiah, by the way, came and went a couple of times. Verse 7, I came and then I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers. I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. So Nehemiah is kind of one of those old school prophet types. <laughs> He's like, no, sir, throwing furniture out of the temple, like cleansing the temple. Is this it? Yes, sir. Yes. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Probably. Probably so. Yeah, I'm guessing. Um, I, earlier, yeah, yeah, yeah. He was one of the ones fighting against it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense, does it? But it just shows you the confusion and the... God's people came back and immediately went back to doing the very things that got them exiled in the first place. They were just living among the people, and they weren't they weren't they weren't remaining pure, and that's what he's calling them out for. Um, so, the thirteen verses twenty three to twenty seven. Chapter 13, verse 23. In those days I also saw Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod. And they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. And then he references Solomon. This was what Solomon did. And he says Solomon was a good king, but nevertheless, the foreign women made him to, to sin. Verse 26. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And so um, we talked about this. Verse 30. I cleanse them from everything foreign. Now, this is a difficult passage. It's difficult to stand up and preach because it just sounds on the surface so, so harsh. Uh, and it sounds very much like it's a racial thing, you know, only the Jews, no non-Jews. And I made the point, you know, Ruth is a Moabite. So I, I, I think there's a principle here that it's the, the bigger issue is, are they, are they people of God or have they become people of God? And by the way, God's also shows judge his people. So he's not like, as long as you're Jewish, you're good. No, you got to be Jewish and be faithful. And a non-Jewish person could be faithful. But the point here is purity. He wants them to be pure. Another, another text I referenced on Sunday was Isaiah 56, 6 and 7, which says, The foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, these I will bring to my holy mountain, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. So God has a heart for the nations, and He always has. New Testament thing, that's, a, that's from the beginning. But in order to reach the nations, His, his people have to be faithful. And in order to be faithful, they're supposed to be pure. And if they dilute themselves, there will be no more Israel to bless the nations. And I use the illustration of what we, what we call regenerate church membership. We want the church to be pure. In other words, to be made up of believers, Christians. It doesn't mean non-believers are not welcome, but it means church. The church is defined by the believers, and that's important. You've got to guard the front door, back door. Why? Not just because we want to be a holy club, but because we want to accomplish our mission. And if we're if we're if we're mixed in that sense, impure, we're not going to accomplish our mission. So the way we accomplish the mission is to make sure we're pure. Um, not so we can say, "Look at how great we are," 
but so that we can be pure, so we can accomplish the mission, which reaches as many people as possible. So it's purity for the sake of the gospel, or the mission, evangelism, missions, reaching as many people as possible. So why, why does this seem so, why does that sound so radical? And yet, why is it important? And what are the consequences if we don't get that, that principle? Any thoughts on that? Were you answering? Right. Right. Other gods. Yeah, that's the problem. And the pattern of God's people historically had been they were attracted to the gods of the foreign nations and they they start worshiping other gods. And that's that's the problem. That's what that's what God said. No other gods beside me. When you go into the land, don't worship their gods. Well, that's exactly what God's people did. And now They've been exiled. You'd think they learned the lesson. They come back and they go right back to the foreign gods. And he's like, what are you doing? And so he has to purify, not, not because God doesn't want other people involved, but because his people have to be pure to accomplish the mission. Yeah. Any other thoughts on this idea that, you know, to an outsider probably sounds so radical, so exclusive, and yet it's crucial what are the consequences if we don't get this? Any thoughts? Yes. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. The point, the comment was, who's going to take care of the wives and the children? It seems really harsh. Uh, I didn't talk about this last week, but if you look back at Ezra, the same exact issue gets addressed in Ezra. Um... Look at verse look at chapter 10 verse 16. Then the returned exiles did so. Ezra the priest selected men heads of fathers houses according to their fathers house each of them designated by name on the first day of the 10th month they sat down to examine the matter. Verse 17 and by the first day of the first month they had come to the end of all the men who had married foreign women. So the picture we get in Ezra, and I think it's consistent with Nehemiah, is not just simply get divorced, you send them away, end of story. I think they're examining. Because in, in Ezra, they don't deal with the issue immediately. Because they say, we need to take a little time. And they end up taking a few months. We need to appoint people to be judges. And we'll bring each case before and examine each case and figure out what to do. And I, I think what's implied there, trying not to read more or too little, but I think it's possible that what's implied there is it's case by case. And for those who were willing to become a part of the people of God and, and repent, and they said, we're going to be faithful, worship the Lord alone, I, I believe that was legitimate. And they, they said, okay. For those who said, no, we worship others. And it could be that some of them were marrying multiple wives. So it may not just be a matter of two people got married, they had kids, and now they're coming in. I mean, that's what we picture because that's what, I was going to say that's what our world looks like, but not anymore. <laughs> not anymore. Um, so, I mean, I think it's possible that it looks a little different than what we kind of picture. And, and, and I, I believe, based on the rest of Scripture, that it's not just as, it's not just as, it's a little overly simplified to picture it as just they come in, divorce everybody, clean cut, we're done. I, I th case by case, examine each situation. What are we going to do here? And even the list at the end of Ezra, the, there's the list of people, and it ends up being less than what it maybe kind of sounds like at first. It sounds like at first it's everybody. And then the list has got like maybe 100 people on it. And of the 100, how many... So. That would be my response, and, but I appreciate the sensitivity, and I think it's a right instinct to say, this sounds really harsh, and there's other scripture that says, you know, I think about in Corinthians, you, you stay married. You don't, you, don't, you don't divorce someone on the basis of them not being a believer. It's a right instinct to say, wait a minute, what's going on here? 
Yes, ma'am. <laughs> well, uh, it's kind of, I mean, it's difficult. The timeline's a little difficult. I know that Nehemiah arrives on the scene 13 years after Ezra arrives on the scene. The question is, at what which point they're ministering together? Is the one who reads the Bible in Nehemiah? So, I think it's very likely that these are very similar situations, similar issue, a lot of overlap. Um, so it may be that the two the two situations are. It's it may be that the two books are describing the same situation. Yeah, yeah, they were considered one book. In the same way that First and Second Chronicles were one book, yeah, yeah, yes. Okay, good stuff. All right, let me finish with this, and then we'll let you drive home safely. And you, yeah, take off if you need to. I understand. Um, so, I made the point on Sunday. You know, you think about insiders, outsiders, pure, pure. God's people need to be pure. You know, we we tend to think of ourselves as being the pure ones who are in the inside, but we're not. We're the outsiders who are getting kicked out of the temple. You know, uh, Nehemiah is the one. But we get to be brought in. God brings us in. And he does it through, through his son, Jesus Christ. And the way that happens is Jesus Christ gets kicked out and gets treated as the outsider. He gets taken outside the city, outside the camp. He gets treated like he's impure, though he's the only one who's truly pure. Think about it. Nobody's truly pure. Only Jesus is pure. He was treated as if he was impure. Why? So that we who are impure could be brought in as sons of daughters of God. And, uh, and, and that's the gospel. That's the incredible good news. Um, why is it important that we always remember that we were outsiders who have been made insiders? And yet at the same time, it's also important that we remember we are in fact insiders because God has brought us in. Right? We're not insiders because I belong. But why is it why is it crucial that we always keep this perspective? I am a, a former outsider who has been brought in because Jesus was made an outsider temporarily for me. Why, why is this crucial that we keep this perspective? What's that? Yeah? Keep the humility. Yeah. Yeah, right on. Yes, sir. Yeah, it's a great, great comment. I, I like what, what you said reminded me of this. Truly becoming holy and pure, and God's the one doing it. If it's true purity, if it's true holiness, it's not going to lead me to condemn the world or to withdraw from the world. It's going to lead me to want to minister the gospel to the world. I'm going to love the outsider, and I'm going to want to see the outsider come in. That's the mark and the sign that I really am being purified. There's, there's an instinct. It's a, it's a legalistic instinct. I'm pure and you're not. And I'm on the inside and I like it here and I'm better than you because I'm here and you're not. That's, that's, that's not staying the line. A, truly, a person who's truly becoming pure in the, in, the, in the biblical sense is a person who has a heart for the outsider. Why? Because I was an outsider and I was forgiven this enormous debt and therefore I want you to be forgiven your, your debt. Right. Yeah. Good, good, good stuff. Any other thoughts, comments? Yeah. Right. Right on. Right on. Which is the very heart of Christ. 
who, though he was a true insider, was willing to be treated like the outsider so we could be brought in. It's good. It's hard to, it's hard to consider that and be arrogant. All right. Anybody willing to pray for us and then we'll take off and drive slowly, right? Anybody willing to close us in prayer? Thank you, sir. Amen. Thank you all very much.